This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And of course, what we are here to talk about, what else? The global coronavirus pandemic. One of the mysteries, there are many of them, surrounding the virus is the impact on kids. Much of the early data showed it didn't do a whole lot to them, but we don't know quite why. Well, now there are some new reports suggesting some kids, even those with mild or no symptoms, can end up suffering long-term lung damage. Hey, by the way, have you heard the one about two hairstylists? Now, it's not a joke. They had the virus and they still worked. And we will tell you why not one of their clients got infected. Oh, Canada. Our friendly neighbors up north getting the upper hands on the virus. What are they doing right that we may not be? Is it their bacon? Yes. It's (laughs) maple syrup. It's (laughs) the cure. (laughs) (laughs) While many universities are... Is it really? (laughs) Well, it can't hurt. (laughs) No, it can't. Get that quarantine 15. While many uh, universities are sticking with online classes to start the new school year, some some are still planning to welcome students back, and we will explain if this could work without spreading the virus. The pandemic could lead to the rise of the robots, because that's all we need right now. Yeah, we'll right. just leave it at that and explain a little <laughs> later on. Let's get back to the virus and kids. Dr. Jennifer Schuster is a pediatric infectious disease physician over at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. Doctor, these are, uh, granted, early reports, and they're not peer-reviewed studies, but still pretty concerning, right? Well, I think there's there's a lot to think about. You know, this is um, a relatively new virus. We've only known about this virus for the last eight, nine months at this point. And, and I think every day I learn something new, um, as, as probably you guys are as well. Um, what we do know right now about children who have uh, COVID-19 is that the vast majority of them have very mild disease. And so in children, what we know is it's actually very, very different than what we're seeing in adults, and in particularly our older adults. So the majority of of children with COVID-19 actually don't require hospitalization. They have mild illness, and they, so far, uh, the vast majority seem to recover fine. There is a very small subset of children who have um, who go on to then develop what's called multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, or MISC, um, which where children present after they've had an acute infection with COVID, which a lot of times actually goes unnoticed, the initial infection, and they present with um, fever and uh, uh, extreme inflammation and evidence of some organ dysfunction. Those children often require hospitalization and can be quite sick, although with appropriate treatment, the vast majority of those children have actually done really, really well, um, and many people at this point have, have heard about MIS-C. Um, what I think you're alluding to is um, some pediatric information that um, was reported out of Florida where there um, are some thoughts that children who have COVID-19 but perhaps don't have symptoms or have very mild symptoms have changes on chest imaging or on chest x-rays. But what we don't know yet, because this virus is so new, is we really don't know what the long-term effects are in children at this point. We know that the vast majority of children do relatively well, but again, I I think it's difficult to comment on long-term effects or irreversible effects when we're we're learning every day on a virus that's only been around for about eight to nine months. Yeah, we're still trying to figure it out, but this wouldn't be totally out of of the realm of possibility because there have been some other 
anecdotal stories of people who are in their, you know, teens and 20s getting COVID, not realizing it, and then their lung scans showing the same thing. And, you know, they're not having breathing trouble. They don't know because the capacity isn't that diminished, but you can see it. They just don't realize it. Absolutely. And that's been one of the things that people have been have reported with COVID-19 from the very beginning is that many people didn't have symptoms, but when they did imaging, as you mentioned, on CT scans, uh, they did see changes. And there was a recent report that came out. Now, this is all adults, but they did note that a number of people after COVID-19 continue to have symptoms for the next one to two months after disease. So over half had fatigue, about 40% still had uh, difficulty breathing. So we know that this, uh, there are long-lasting effects in the adult population. We don't know how long those are, whether they're reversible or irreversible at this point. And with children, we are still learning. There's just less information out there at this point. So that's something that we are definitely still watching and very attuned to. And I think that this goes back to, I was listening to you guys talk before I got on, but, you know, the best thing is preventing getting this virus. You guys mentioned the mask study with the two hairdressers that was just published out of Missouri. So I think that really the focus should be on prevention. So this is um, wearing a, a cloth face covering or a cloth face mask, um, practicing hand hygiene, uh, avoiding uh, large uh, crowds, particularly indoors, and practicing physical distancing. Dr. Jennifer Schuster, pediatric infectious disease physician, Children's Mercy Hospital, Kansas City, Missouri. If you're pro-mask and want some ammo for anti-maskers, you're going to love this one. Two hairstylists in Missouri got infected with the virus, but they kept working, cutting hair for about a week. They said they saw about 140 clients, and not one of them got the virus. Why? They say because of masks. Kendra Findlay is the administrator for community health and epidemiology at the Springfield Green County Health Department there in Missouri. She led the study of these two hairstylists. So, Kendra, I guess if you had to make a commercial supporting masks, this is the one you use. Oh, absolutely. Um, we were, I, I feel like we're incredibly fortunate that um, this happened the way that it did. Um, you know, so far with this global pandemic, you know, we don't have really good um, weapons or tools to respond to this. And um, in the beginning, obviously, masking was really wasn't something that was um, advertised or promoted, you know, and so we've gone, you know, a full, uh, 360 on this. And now we are suggesting that masks, you know, maybe we should utilize masks and we have the great fortune in Springfield, Missouri to have had this, um, exposure in this hair salon, um, that really does, um, provide us with the data to point to, masks are effective when used. I think a lot of people may remember just the headline of this story when it first came out, because this was after the reopenings, and it had been a little while, as we, as we said in the setup, mm -hmm. and the headline was, oh my gosh, these hairstylists exposed all their clients to COVID. And then you started watching it closely as all of us you know, went on with our lives and started caring about what was going on in our, our own communities as we do. Were you surprised at what you saw? Or once you knew that they had all been wearing masks, did you think there was less exposure than maybe, you know, the news had thought at first? Well, I, and as you all and ever, all your listeners are aware, you know, I mean, we're learning more and more about COVID every day. It's like drinking from a fire hose. So as we started um, monitoring 
uh, all of those individuals who were exposed, the 139, um, and started offering testing, we, um, to be honest, I mean, I really did assume that we would have positive cases from this. I mean, they were within arm's length of two positive cases. Um, I, I really did feel sure we would have positive cases. So when we did not, um, yeah, I was very, very surprised. Now, in, in terms of the masks, as I know people are, are going to be uh, wanting to know this, were they wearing, and I'm talking both the hairstylists and the customers, were they wearing these N95 masks that doctors wear? Were they wearing cloth masks? What were they wearing? That is a great question. So when it comes to the customers who were there, um, half of them wore the double-layered cloth masks. So many of those would be um, homemade, um, and the other half were wearing surgical only about 5% were wearing the full medical N95. Now, when it comes to the two stylists, the stylists were wearing um, handmade cloth masks. So they were double-layered cloth masks. So really that points to the fact that these just double-layered, simple cloth masks that you can either purchase or you can make yourself, that's effective. I mean, that's it's huge when you think about the fact that it doesn't take a lot of money. It's something that you can make at home. Um, it's something you can launder and reuse, and it's effective. Um, we have to have something. If we don't have a vaccine, um, we have to have something that we can utilize um, to slow the spread. Yeah, in an easy way. Canada is getting control over the virus. Now, it wasn't a, a great start as there were significant outbreaks in Quebec and Ontario. But it does look like it's in much better shape now than the U.S., which has more than three times as many total infections per capita. Not to mention nearly twice as many deaths. Dr. Susie Hota is Director of Infection Prevention and Control, University Health Network in Toronto, Professor of Epidemiology, the University of Toronto. So, Doctor, why is Canada doing a better job than we are? Well, the first thing I wanted to say is I think it's easy to poke holes in any country's response to this. Go ahead and poke holes. Go ahead. (laughs) You know, we're all learning as we go through this. But, you know, I think the important things that needed to happen happened early enough in Canada's response um, that it had the impact that we were hoping for. So I would say one of the critical things that we did is implementing lockdown-type measures or restrictions um, fairly early on and consistently across the provinces uh, in the country. So schools closed. Um, people were advised to stay at home as much as possible and businesses, uh, only essential businesses remained open and others were closed and the travel restrictions and quarantine orders were put into place pretty pretty quickly. And, and I think, you know, those kinds of broad measures are really what have the, the biggest impact and the quickest impact. Um, so, you know, masking and things like that have rolled out a little bit later, but uh, I would say that we, we have a culture that uh, really helps people to buy into these kinds of uh, interventions when they are rolled out, and that's certainly helped us up uh, helped us up until this point. Okay, so you had problems in the population centers. Everybody has those. You had problems in long-term care homes, quick hotspots. Everybody had those. Um, testing tracing, how fast were you able to ramp that up and make sure the people who were sick stayed isolated? I think we were pretty successful in getting the testing capacity up uh, to what we needed it to be quickly enough that it helped us along the way. Like, I I mean, there's always, uh, you know, worries that you're not going to get there quickly enough. We managed to do it um, in time. I think the contact tracing and the public health 
uh, side of things is always a challenge because there it's just a, a very manual and labor-intensive process to begin with. But so far, we haven't seen our public health units being overwhelmed with the amount of contact tracing that is needed. So, so those sides of, of what we've done with our response have been reasonably well uh, managed. All right, but let's, um, for the moment, we'll, we'll sort of leave aside most of the United States, and, and let's just look at the state that we are in, Mike and I, at the moment, California. So we did, it sounded like pretty much what you guys did in Canada. I mean, we were the first state that we did issue stay-at-home orders. We closed down all non-essential businesses, and we did that for quite some time. We flattened the the proverbial curve. Uh, Everybody seemed to be patting each other on the back on what a great job we did. Then... We started to open stuff up, and now we're arguably in worse shape than we were a few months ago. How did you in Canada Canada avoid, because you are reopening, right? How did you avoid going back to where you were initially and maybe even in a worse position? So we're at a point now where we're just starting to reopen in many of the more affected areas within Canada. So, you know, the other provinces where there weren't that many cases to begin with, have, you know, been able to reopen a little bit quicker and the impact really hasn't been, we haven't seen a surge like like you described. Um, but of course, we are watching really closely in the two provinces that have, you know, 85% of our cases, Ontario and Quebec, uh, as we start to reopen um, and like how well are we going to manage the outbreaks that we know are inevitable as you start to reopen some of the businesses and some of uh, society. Um, so I think that's the key is how quickly can you stomp on it how quickly can you trace the individuals who've been in contact with sick um, individuals and how quickly can you um, reimpose restrictions as you need them? So Dr. Susie, so, oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, and I think that your key, <laughs> but the key point there is, is the sustainability. You know, that's the biggest challenge that we're all going to face through this pandemic. Yeah, got to keep it going. Dr. Susie Hota, Director of Infection Prevention Control, University Health Network in Toronto, Professor Epidemiology, University of Toronto. Some colleges and universities are still planning to bring students back to campus next month and in September. They have plans to try to reduce the spread of the virus by having one person per dorm room requiring masks and banning parties. Well, because college kids won't party, and we know that. How, right? do ban, how do you ban parties in a college? <laughs> well, we'll talk about if this is all going to work. Temple University psychology professor Lawrence Steinberg says no. He's been studying risk-taking for more than 20 years and talks to KYW's Suzanne Monahan. Well, there are a variety of plans. I think they're, they're the obvious things, like having hand sanitizer readily available and um, distributing and uh, encouraging students to wear masks and practicing social distancing um, in in classrooms. Uh, Some campuses are also reconfiguring dormitories to move students into single rooms uh, so that they're not living in close contact with each other. Um, But I think an underlying assumption for all these plans um, is that the plans expect students to, um, to comply and to behave in ways that are going to minimize um, exposure to each other and to other members of the campus community. And um, I'm just not so sure that we can we can expect that to be done to the extent that it would need to be done to make the program successful. Yeah, and some of the plans seem unrealistic. For example, I was reading one university's guidelines 
and they said that they expect students to wash their masks in between uses. Well, that doesn't make much sense, and I don't believe that the masks are made to be washed unless they're using some other kind of kind of mask. Um, you know, students may do that. What 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 I worry about is what might go on in the in in the evenings when students begin congregating and partying and. Um, you know, I mean, this is an age group that is very prone to risky activity and behavior. We know that there's a lot of binge drinking on college campuses. I think if kids are binge drinking, that you know, they're they're probably not likely to practice social distancing or or other safe behaviors. Well, exactly. I mean, isn't part of or a large part of going to college the social aspect? Oh, I think it's it's primarily the social aspect. Um, not only for the partying, but because students learn a lot from each other, from their classmates. And clearly that can't be replicated by online instruction. Um, On the other hand, we're in the midst of a very unusual and hopefully temporary situation. And if schools decided to stay exclusively online this fall, it would deprive the students of some of the social experience that they go to college for, but it would at least keep them on pace to graduate uh, in time or close to in time. And I think that we ought to sacrifice the social experience for one semester in order to protect the health, uh, not only of the students, but of the faculty and staff uh, and the members of the community who live, who live uh, nearby campus. Right. Because, you know, even uh, some schools, you know, like you mentioned, they're having it so you don't have a roommate. But then in turn, many students have been denied housing. So those students are going to be commuting back and forth. There's no way to control who they're coming into contact with. So while these may be good intentions on the part of these schools, I just don't see how it realistically can happen. I, I agree entirely. Um, and, and I don't uh, look, I, uh, I've been a professor for more than 40 years. I love teaching. I really look forward to the day when we're all back on campus together doing in-person instruction, because I don't for a moment believe that that online instruction can ever uh, replicate that experience. Um, and I have really tried thinking about this over the last month or so about what might be done that might work and I really can't come up with any solution. No, there, there really isn't any perfect solution. Um, you know, I thought it was interesting because you and your colleagues actually did a study about risky behavior. Yes, that has been the focus of my research for the last 20 years or so. We have studied risk-taking both in the real world and also in the experimental laboratory conditions where we can um, give people risk-taking tasks and see how they perform. Um, And we've done this research not only in the United States, but around the world. And the peak age for risk-taking in all countries is between the ages of 20 and and 24. Um, Well, that's the population that, that colleges are hoping to persuade not to take risks. So as I said in the op-ed, uh, I can't think of an age that's going to be harder to deter from taking um, risks than, than the undergraduate college population. So if you had a crystal ball and could predict how this would work out, what would be your thoughts? 
Well, I think, of course, it's going to vary from, from place to place. And, and you might see a different pattern in a small liberal arts college like Vassar, where I went to college, um, and a large public university like Penn State, for example. But what I think is going to happen generally is that for the first couple of weeks, um, students are going to follow the rules. And then they're going to start to get either lazy or frustrated um, or, or just simply tired of it. And we'll start to see them not wearing masks as often, um, not socially distancing and engaging in activities with their um, dorm mates and with um, the students who might not live in the same dorm, but uh, whom they socialize with. And I, and I think you're going to start to see a, a big increase in cases on campus. Robots. I don't think I like robots, actually. I've seen too many movies yeah, where it's us against them. Yeah, I mean, they always start out nice, you know, and people go, oh, we got a robot. And then the robot does something really malicious. And then you, well, anyway, they've always played a major role in science fiction. And now they're very much a part of science fact. And they could start taking over jobs. You see, I knew it. They could start taking over jobs in a post-pandemic world. Hard enough to get a job right now. Yeah. And the robot's going to beat you out. Paul Hockman, president of Humongous Media, talks to WBBM's Cisco Cotto about the rise of robots and if they'll be roaming around the offices. Yes, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, no, I mean, you, you know, in some ways, yes, depends on what office you're describing. But sure, in a retail environment, for example, um, where one of the most onerous, least fun um, parts of a very key process, namely inventory management, um, was often handled by and still is often handled by people. And um, look, I walk into a you know a Kroger and I see people literally just counting up you know cartons of eggs. That's something they have to do because they have to manage that inventory. If they don't, they're going to have serious problems on the other end. Robots can do it. So yes, increasingly, and Target has already tested it. Robots are roaming the aisles, uh, basically managing with with digital applications. They're managing the the inventory. So you will see them. They're already on campuses like Intuit, which makes TurboTax and QuickBooks out in Mountain View, delivering uh, packages from office to office. There are robots roaming those campuses right now. So it's with us, but you know what it'll look like is still changing. And the question is, does it necessarily mean fewer jobs or companies shifting those workers to other places? I, I guess it could end up being a little of both. Well, I think that's probably right, as always, with, with sort of a seismic shift as COVID has driven this kind of change to you know robot-driven uh, inventory management and other process like warehouse management and so on. Yeah, it'll there'll be some jobs lost. Some of those jobs won't be so unpleasant to lose, though. In other words, you know, human beings are better uh, sur- suited uh, to doing a lot more literally mindful things than robots are in many cases. Robots do automated stuff very well. They don't make mistakes, generally speaking. They keep doing the same thing over and over where human beings would be driven bonkers by that. Um, well, human beings might well find better jobs as a result, and certainly that will happen here. And so when it comes to, okay, delivery, I mean, we're, we're talking about, I mean, I, I see these headlines about uh, pizza delivery robots and things like that. I mean, that, that's not too far-fetched. No, no, no. In fact, we talked about it in, in another segment a little while ago, you know, Amazon and its drones delivering pizza. Anything under about five pounds, the FAA is less worried about uh, because if it drops from a height, it's less heavy for obvious reasons. Well, the, the you know, the, the new need, of course, is you don't want to necessarily contact a human being uh, delivering your products to your door, uh, mostly for, for safety reasons right now. Well, yes, uh, uh, robots take a very, very, will take a prominent role there. Drones already will, and robots are, in fact, they're having, I know UPS and FedEx are both testing that so-called last mile, literally, in this case, robots handling the last few hundred yards of delivery from a truck to a house.
Yeah, and in a COVID age, I mean, it's attractive, right? Because it's less human-to-human contact. That, that's exactly right. And by the way, again, it's also trackable. In a lot of cases, uh, because these robots are, are attached to a GPS device, and you know, right now nobody really necessarily other than a smartphone wants to attach themselves to a GPS device, literally, uh, robots can be tracked. You can see where is this package. Um, you know, look, inventory management doesn't just end at the store. It starts where it, when it's sent. So fi- figuring out where it is, supply chain management is actually enhanced. And with robots, you know, handling all that package delivery, and as you just said, um, that robot is not, you know, the virus it gets is a very different kind of virus than we get, uh, and that's something that we can handle. So probably a heads up, and, and they, they know this, but a heads up to younger people, hey, go into a field where you're going to be working on robots. That's the future. Oh, my gosh. You know, there's all kinds of, I'm not kidding. I mean, my, my younger kids have robot robotics programs that are available to them that obviously didn't exist when I was around as a kid. And uh, I will say that's a, a burgeoning, absolutely a burgeoning field. I would leave you with this. The biggest adjustment I think we're going to have to make is not in logistics. It's going to be an attitude. In other words, how do we feel, as you mentioned a moment ago, with these little devices literally zooming around, rolling around, running around under our feet or near us? Uh, short answer is it's already here, so we're going to have to adjust. But that's probably going to be the biggest change. I'll be honest, if they'll do my laundry, I think I might be open to it. <laughs> yeah, that robot is called uh, your teenage son or daughter. Um, <laughs> but, but attitudinally, much easier to handle a robot than it is to handle a teenager. I'm going to make sure my kids hear this segment. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's Paul Hockman. First, there was a toilet paper shortage. Then it was hard to find flour in the store. Now it's getting hard to find coins. The pandemic has led to a shortage of sorts. The U.S. Mint was temporarily closed earlier this year because of the virus, so it wasn't making coins. But an analyst from CreditCards.com says the main reason for the shortage is that people are not spending their coins. They're leaving them at home and therefore taking them out of circulation. More people are using debit and credit cards to avoid touching cash and coins. Some stores are even asking for exact change or to pay with a debit or credit card so they don't run out of coins. If everyone just went to the little box that we have in our closets where we put all the extra change for the machine, we'll be fine. Besides, you know, the old thing about, you know, if you see a penny on on the floor, pick it up. It doesn't really work with a debit card because then that's stealing. (laughs) See a debit card, pick it up. All day you'll have good luck. You can listen to us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Thank you.